0: Listening to Sons of Thunder, a podcast that brings you faith, fellowship, and fire, giving you the spiritual weapons you need to do battle for the Lord. And now, please welcome your hosts, the dynamic deacon and the man on fire.
1: Welcome back to another episode of Sons of Thunder. I am your co host, the man on fire, John Sablon. And look up in the sky, it's a bird, it's a plane. No, that's the dynamic Deacon. Deacon L. <laughs> <Elberg's> ever- <laughs>
0: What oh you're right? funny john <laughs> uh, i'm doing well my friend it's always great <laughs> always great to be with you now that i took my cape off you know so <laughs>
1: hey, you know i mean i think our listeners and our viewers out there they 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 expect you know some some uh, dynamic fire so we just got to keep them on their toes you know we don't want to always uh, just the same old same old funny. but yeah i mean you know you are you are like superman flying from city to city and uh trying to save some well, souls yeah. so even better even better <laughs> so how you been brother
0: (laughs) yeah i've been well been well thank you um you know uh i've been traveling a little bit more you know now uh compared obviously didn't go anywhere last Lent uh, for months actually Mm. and um you know this lent is obviously uh not as busy as as typically (laughs) i've been the past (laughs) several years but i'm grateful to be at least traveling and speaking in front of people again you know um the conferences that i've spoken at have been a lot smaller than normal You know, typically, for example, one conference, they typically have 1,200 people there, and um, because of the coronavirus and social distancing concerns, uh, they they moved into a smaller venue, a parish, and there were probably about 180 people there, all spaced out, you know, uh, Mm. not spaced out like Hi, but like <laughs> socially distant space that is spaced out, you know? Yeah, safely. Uh, and I, safely yeah, distance, safely ride, uh, <laughs> right? Everybody wearing masks and that kind of thing. I mean, so yeah, it's smaller than normal. Um, my schedule is much lighter than normal, but still grateful, uh, to be speaking in front of people. Why? Because we're an incarnational church, mm-hmm. right? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We need to interact with each other in a personal way. I think that's one of the hardest things about this whole thing is people not interacting with another person, you know, just interacting through a, a computer screen um, and not, and not seeing people's faces, not being able to people see people smile or their expressions. And, you know, um, and, and I think those are the, those are the things that I think have been really affecting people, um, in general, not just Catholics, but people in general, I think, um, And and so, uh, and and obviously as Catholics, we feel that in a particular way by not being um, able to go to mass in some cases, although, you know, things are starting to open up, you know, praise Jesus, you know, things are beginning to open up again. And um, uh, even here in Archdiocese of Portland now, um, we're allowed, you know, uh, 50% capacity now, which is great. But uh, what we're seeing, you know, uh, people are slow to come back, though, you know, Mm -hmm. people are very slow to come back to the church.
1: Yeah, we've been kind of entrenched in all this fear, right? And and just um we've been conditioned in a sense to really allow some of these uh, external factors that are, you know, they're real, but at the same time I think it's um, you know, the devil's winning that game where, you know, we just crippled a lot of the faithful, a lot of the people out there um to your point Deacon about you know, the communal aspect of our faith. I'm just, you know, we're human beings, we're relational beings. And so you see, that's why you see mental health issues uh, on the rise and continue to be on the rise, Um, whether regardless of your demographics, regardless of your age group, um, we need to be in contact with other human persons. So, which leads us, you know, you talk about that we're an incarnational uh, church and that when we were prepping for this, we were talking about, you know, trying to get ourselves beyond obviously 2020, um, thank, thank goodness we're almost at the end of the first quarter of 2021. Get, let's get as far beyond 2020 as possible. Um, but how do we how do we prepare ourselves as parishes start opening up, as communities start to um, welcome back um, faithful, those that were part of their communities to begin with or, or new folks who've you know, hopefully had some conversion, especially during the season of Lent? what what is going to be the key to that transformation what's going to be the key to that sustenance and you kind of alluded to it in your in the opening with regards to being an incarnational church and it is our lord himself um we are in the season of lent and uh you know can't can't wait for us to get to the uh the to easter sunday um because that is the whole uh, the whole reason of our faith right without it it would everything else is in vain so let's talk let's break this open deacon with regards to this Eucharistic Renaissance is really what we're referring to.
0: Yeah. Now, um, you know, it was interesting. At One of the events I was at, uh, they, they had Mass. And so I was deaconing at the Mass, and, and Father got up to do the homily. And the first thing he said was, how many of you want to go back to life as normal? You know, like, go back to the way things were before, back to normal. A bunch of people raised their head. And he said, I wish you wouldn't have said that. <laughs> and we're all like, what? <laughs> and then he starts sharing um some very uh depressing numbers. Um uh, numbers that I heard before, typically from um Bishop Robert Barron, um, mm-hmm. about where we where we are in our faith as a Catholic Church, especially our faith in the Eucharist. I think you have some of that some of those numbers um uh there. Mm-hmm. So I mean and now the, now what you're about to share with us, John. Remember, this is before COVID nineteen. Before yeah. The um, uh, the pandemic uh, and before the dispensations by the bishops that that were there uh, that said that people did not have to attend the Eucharist every Sunday.
1: Yeah, I mean, the I think what most of the folks are referring to is kind of the most um, recent study was done by Pew Research uh, Forum where where and this was back in 2019, like you said, you know, so we're talking uh, pre-COVID time and um, before you know, we were, we were, were stripped of, of the sacraments. But in it, uh, just to kind of highlight some of it, is it, it, you know, in its survey, only one third of US Catholics agree with the church that the Eucharist is truly the body, blood, and soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. One third. So you think about that, and we're talking only 31% essentially believe in transubstantiation. Everybody else, for that matter, including some of those who are f- practicing Catholics, practicing Catholics that go to mass on a weekly basis, just think that that bread and wine is just a symbol, you know, that there is, that there's, you know, even, even some uh, admitted to disagreeing with the church's teaching that they don't believe that it's truly the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord. And, you know, while I'd like to be surprised Deacon, I think I look at the state of the world and the state of church. are like, Oh, makes some sense. If we don't really believe that the Lord is truly present, then then what really is the point of all of this stuff? No matter what, that's at the, you know, we call it as, as Catholics, the source and summit of our faith. But it, it's just so disturbing when you go through this, you know, you're talking about this idea of transubstantiation, where seven and 10 of these say they personally believe that the bread and wine is in, used in communion are symbols of the uh, body and blood of Jesus Christ. And one of the things that, um, that, that caught my eye is about six and 10, 63% of the most observant Catholics, those who attend mass at least once a week, um, while they accept, they accept the church's teaching 37% of those faithful Catholics don't believe that the communion bread and wine actually become the body and blood. So you say 63% go to mass every week of those 37% don't believe that it's, they just believe it's symbols.
0: (laughs) wow yeah you know and, and again that that's where we are but i mean see here's the thing our lord was very clear you know in john 6 you know, like verse uh, in the 50s like verse 51 i think it goes mm-hmm. i'm the living bread which came down from heaven now remember to set this up he had just fed five thousand people with a couple of loaves and some fish mm-hmm. all right he fed them physically he fed them corporeally now he needs to feed them spiritually and now people would have remembered, of course, what happened in the Exodus, how they were hungry and God f- fed them with the manna, manhut in, in Hebrew, um, the, the, the bread from heaven. And even though they su- he sustained them for 40 years, feeding them twice a day, in fact, it, the, the bread was so um, important to them that, that it was one of the three things that was kept in the Ark of the Covenant, mm-hmm. along with the, the um, Ten Commandments and the Staff of Aaron. And Jesus, then, now, with all that in mind, Jesus says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. Right? He, he reminded them, Yes, your, your fathers ate that manna in the desert and they died. But if anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. And the word there, Greek, is sarx, which means flesh on the bone you know now and we know that they heard him speaking literally because sometimes they say well he was just speaking figuratively you know he meant the the flesh of his word uh no because how do the people how can this man give us his flesh to eat they were disturbed by what he said okay. how can this man give us his flesh to eat mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> because they heard him literally that's mm-hmm. how they heard him and that's the way we have to hear him as well because once jesus sees that they're disturbed by what he says what, what would you think that he would do next? He was, you know, he came to bring, he came to draw people to the Father. He came to bring people to deeper intimacy with mm-hmm. the Heavenly Father in that relationship of intimate, personal, loving, life-giving communion. Mm-hmm. So he's not going to say things are going to drive people apart, but he's mm-hmm. but he has to speak the truth. And so what does he do? He doubles down. He doubles down, right? He's, and, and so after he goes, truly, I say to you, for my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood lives in me and I in him. You know, and people say, "Oh God, who can listen to this?" Okay, you know, now they're, they're real, now they're getting angry. They went from being confused to getting angry. And what is now that Jesus thinks the situation is getting worse? Does he go back and say, "Oh, I was only speaking symbolically. I was only speaking metaphorically." I was only speaking, you know, as an, as, a, as a simile or a, just an example. No. Jesus says, you know, uh, he's, he's, speak, he's speaking words of spirit and life. Words of spirit and life. And, and says, do you take offense of this? You know, uh, and he goes on to say, um, uh, you know, you, he's, he goes on to say that, that uh, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Mm. You're dead. You're a corpse, you know, and and Jesus, I mean, it couldn't could even be clearer about what, what's, uh, what's going on there. Um, and, and so if we have Catholics that don't believe in that, then they really should be receiving communion. I mean, yeah. Let's be real. I mean, because ha- think about it. What, what we believe about Jesus in the Eucharist was passed off from Jesus to the apostles, the apostles through the, the fathers of the church and, and the bishops, so all the way down to us today. Because think about it, uh, just a couple examples, Ignatius of Antioch in 110 AD. Now, 110 is not too far after the death of John, the the last apostle. Mm -hmm. He said, (laughs) I love this, he says, take note of those who hold heterodox opinions. So orthodoxy means right teaching. Heterodoxy means other teaching. That means if ain't the right teaching, it's the wrong teaching. (laughs) Right? (laughs) He said, take note of those who hold the wrong teaching. Right, heterodox opinions and see how contrary they are to uh, how their opinions are to the mind of God. They abstain from the Eucharist and from prayer because they do not confess that the Eucharist is the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ. And that's why they have to refrain from the Eucharist because they don't believe and confess that the Eucharist is the flesh and blood of Christ. Come on now. And then Justin Martyr, a few years later in 151 AD, he said, we call this food Eucharist and no one else is permitted to partake of it except the one who believes our teaching to be true. For not as common bread or common drink do we receive these. But because of the words of our savior Jesus, uh, the food which has been made into the Eucharist by the Eucharistic prayer set down by him, so the words of Christ, Uh, and changed it to his flesh, is the flesh and blood of Mm. the incarnated Jesus. So there's no question or no doubt how they received it from Jesus. And there should be no question and no doubt um, in our time today. But as you uh, articulated, John, from the research, sadly, that's exactly what's happening.
1: Yeah, I mean, even going back to John 6 you know when he lost many disciples returned to their former way of life and then it's not like you know he chased them down he turned to his his circle of trust do you two want to leave you know and it's 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 like you know peter and his confession of faith right lord to whom shall we go you have the words of eternal life and it was difficult to to even grass but they knew that they believed in the second person of the trinity to be god and you know i think about that for for us catholics today deacon when we when we approach the sacrament especially in mass you know what does does our bodies communicate is our faith where it needs to be even if we struggle like all of us right we don't you know people often ask me what do you mean john you mean to tell me you believe everything the church teaches and i'll be like yeah and guess what? Yeah, I don't right. even know everything the church teaches, right? I'm still learning. I'm trying to catch up on 2,000 years and then some. And it's just like, but I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. And I believe this is the church he started. And therefore everything else, man, is just bonus, right? You have to you have to start at a present. So, but it starts with Christ at the center. You know, he gave, you think about the season of Lent, Deacon. You know, when we meditate on the state, the way of the cross, we meditate on the, the true love of, most perfectly portrayed on our Lord. You know, I, I know you say this in a lot of your preaching, right? Holding back nothing from the cross, giving him his life. And so we approach it in a pedestrian kind of, mm. kind of manner. Like, you know, it's like, wow, we stare at that cru- crucifix. We stare at that, the body of Christ on, on the cross as we you sit there and mask and we're just going to approach it like it's, meh. you know, uh, it, it's just, it's a sad state. And you know you like, and you like you're like going back to the early church fathers. You go back to that, you know, first and second century that, that that's faith that's been handed on to us. And you think about this. I remember our our uh, our good friend Deacon Alex Jones. God, you know, God rest his soul. Yeah. And I think about his his conversion into the church. And what does he what did he say when he came into the church? I mean, this was a man who had his own congregation as as a as a Protestant pastor, and led his flock into the one true church. And he said, when you read the church fathers, you see a couple of things. One, it was Eucharistic. And two, it was hierarchical. And so you have to come to this realization. If you're truly seeking the truth and you can talk to the the Scott Hans of the world, you talk about some of these, these other converts, they're kicking the door down for one of two things. One is confession, of course, reconciliation, but most important piece, the Eucharist, they had all this other stuff, but they didn't have the whole banquet. They didn't have our Lord in the sacrament of Holy Communion. And, you know, I, I just think, man, what we as Catholics, we're just missing the point. I mean, 70%, 70% don't really embrace the greatest gift our Lord gave us, the greatest gift our heavenly father gave us in his body, right? In of his, of his son. So, Deacon, why is this important when we think about the, the, you know, the title of this, this episode is Eucharistic Renaissance? You and I both uh, would agree emphatically that uh, the Eucharist, specifically when we think about, um, of course, receiving our Lord and, and Holy Communion, but like Eucharistic Adoration being game changers, we are Eucharistic people. Um, our Lord gave us himself to sustain us, much like he gave the Israelites manna to sustain them in their in their journey through the desert to get to the promised land. So why is this? Why do we why would we call it a Eucharistic Renaissance?
0: Yeah. And and just just to touch on something briefly that, that you mentioned about approaching the sacrament, you know, when, when you were mm-hmm. speaking um, my mind immediately went to First Corinthians chapter eleven, verse twenty. Mm. Um, you know wh- what's going on is that um, they're having the um, they're having mass. And back then, in First Corinthians chapter eleven, they they were having mass in people's homes. Why? Because there were no churches. It was illegal to be a Christian, so you had to have to celebrate the liturgy either in the catacombs or in people's homes. In this particular case, they're celebrating the liturgy in someone's house. And Paul is berating the people there because they're eating and drinking during Mass. And the reason why they're eating and drinking, because they had food that they would bring for what they call the agape meal. That was something that would happen after the the liturgy, the Eucharistic service. They would have a meal where everybody brought food and shared it. Um, And so there were people that were wealthier, people that were poorer. And so everyone would share what they have with everyone else. It's kind of like coffee <laughs> and conversation after Mass. <laughs> That's like the old school <laughs> way of doing it, called the agape meal. So the problem was people were eating and drinking during Mass and getting drunk during Mass. And Paul blasts them. But one of the things he says after reminding people, now remember, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is also the first place where we have what happened at the Last Supper, the Last Supper narrative. Because Paul was writing before the Gospels were written. Mm -hmm. remember so so when he says that um remember what jesus told us you know um uh he when he was in the upper room with his apostles the night he was betrayed he took bread and when he gave thanks he broke it this is my body this right and then he says after that whoever therefore eats and drinks the cup of the lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body Mm -hmm. and blood of the lord so let a man examine himself, he says. Ah, examination of conscience. See, th- that's important, John, because when we get up to receive the Eucharist, we're not just, it's not just another part of Mass. Like you said, our, we are, our bodies are saying something. What are we saying when we get up to receive Jesus in that sacrament? What we're saying is, Lord Jesus, I love you. I love you more than anyone or anything else in this world. I love you so much. That I want you to create your life in me. Mm-hmm. And that's that exchange of love and life and intimacy and communion, which is the, the hallmarks of covenant relationship. He's inviting us to share life with him. and we, and if, if we're f- filled with sin, then there's no way we can give our life to him. That's why Paul says uh, uh, examine himself. And what happens if you don't do that? He goes, "You will heap judgment upon yourself. That's why many of you are weak and ill. And some have died. Yeah, so that's not just you know Deacon Harold going off here. This, this is the word to say, Paul. Yeah, you know First Corinthians chapter eleven. So it's a very serious thing, you mm. know, profaning, mocking what Jesus did for us by trying to receive Him in a state of mortal sin. You mm. know, and if and if you have you know almost 70 percent of people not even believing that that's really Jesus, you you can't receive. You know, because remember, being in communion doesn't mean just receiving communion. It means you are in communion um, with all the people around you. You're in communion with Christ because you believe you are receiving him. And you're in communion with his church. That's what that act of communion is saying. You know, so there's some serious implications here for trying to receive Jesus in the Eucharist without really believing. It's him or believing in the church.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're basically, you're, you're professing a faith you don't really believe, you know, um, which is a tragedy, you know, it, it, not only is it sacrilege, um, when you, you come up there and you, and you, you know, uh, bring in judgment upon yourself when you pray for your, for those souls out there that are, um, misinformed or, you know, wherever, wherever you're at, maybe just in the grips of confusion, but, it, it it's, it's just again, what do we communicate? There's a reason why we receive it and and it commun- the mystical body of Christ. And then what would, what are you saying with our body? And you look at our young people today, Deacon. They're suffering from that. They're suffering from a laxadaisical, irreverent, um, you know, obviously uh, misinformed faith. So. You know, it, it it's tough. We're in these times, but you know, I think there's definitely some purification and purging going on. Um, and these studies, you know, you have these studies coming out. Um, I think the the other one, the Gallup, I think was probably the year before that one or close to it, um, and, and came out saying the same thing. So we've we've been seeing the trend. Um, we've been seeing a, a lack of the belief in the true presence or even understanding of transubstantiation. A lot of these people in this survey didn't even know what that was. Like, I don't even know what the Church Jesus and um you know, it's just like, you know, we are, uh, as our, our buddy Jesse Romero would say, right? Low information Catholics out there where it's not just enough to feel something. It's not just enough to kind of go along to get along. Um, you know, knowledge leads to love and to, to know our faith means to know our Lord and to know what the church teaches. And then to, uh, you know, fall in love with that and ultimately fall in love with our Lord. So let's talk about this Renaissance piece to it, because I do agree with you 100% that um, if we're going to get back to any resemblance of a church that's alive and vibrant and uh, is going to change this world and culture, uh, that's really the culture of death. It's going to take us getting back to the roots and the core, which is the source of summit. So let, what, what do we mean by uh, a Eucharistic Renaissance Deacon?
0: Yeah. So the statistics that you were sharing was prior to COVID. Yeah. Okay. So obviously, since COVID, there's been dispensations in many dioceses around the world, um, and that's dispensing people from the obligation of attending Mass every Sunday. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, slowly but surely, um, things have been opening up. You know, um, they're allowing people back into church, uh, not the, the full complement as of yet, as of this recording. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in my diocese, they just opened up to 50%. Uh, again, but socially distanced and wearing masks and, and, and all those kinds of things. And so, but when things do finally open up, you know, when we're definitely on the downslope of, of COVID, um, I think we're not going to see people coming back in the numbers that they were before. I, I think, quite frankly, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm usually a very optimistic person. But I'm, I'm being quite pessimistic now, and I admit that. That I think it's foolish to think that all of a sudden, all the people are going to come back in droves, back to the Mass again, you know, once the disp- dispensation is lifted and we're obligated to come back on Sunday. I think we're creatures of habit. People are, are used to watching it on, on TV. In fact, you only have to watch. The dispensation said you didn't have to go. Not even yeah. you had to watch it on TV. Yeah. Um, so I, I think there's going to take work for people to come back. And that work is the work of evangelization now evangelization for me it's not just good news it's the life-changing encounter with jesus christ and the way that you encounter him to change your life is in the eucharist and so i think we need a eucharistic renaissance a re uh, a, a revival, uh, a revitalization mm-hmm. a, a, a a a deeper passion and love rediscovery of christ in his eucharistic presence body blood soul divinity mm-hmm. now <laughs> I, I was doing a little doing a little research here and, and I was wondering the first time that anyone denied that Jesus was present in the Eucharist. Now when if you would ask somebody, well, who was that who first denied Jesus was present in the Eucharist, what would most people say you think?
1: Um Judas, maybe?
0: Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, okay. After <laughs> Judas, <laughs> right? <laughs> Although, you know, Judas may have believed hung himself. I mean, okay, so. Right, so after yeah. Judas, okay, <laughs> who, who would most who would most people probably think of the one that kind of would, would stand out?
1: Would you think like at the first major split, like uh, Martin Luther?
0: Luther, okay, that's what yeah. a lot of people say. Yeah, yeah, but it wasn't Luther. It was actually a guy named Berengarius of Tours, uh, back around the year ten sixty A.D., mm. um, and and he was a uh, a deacon. I hate I hate admitting that darn but he was a deacon in uh, uh Angers, France who publicly denied that Christ was really and physically present um in the Eucharist under the species or what the, what uh, uh, the appearances of what looks like bread and wine he denied mm-hmm. that Jesus I said, he was the first one and I was like dang of all the people I had to be a deacon and so <laughs> Pope Gregory the seventh ordered Berengarius to sign a credo. So he was schooled. Uh, Berengarius was schooled and actually he eventually came back to the church. But before he was accepted, the Pope himself made him sign what's called a credo. A credo is just a belief statement. Like we have the creed at Mass. I believe in God the Father Almighty. That, that's a credo statement. So mm-hmm. he made him sign a credo statement about the Eucharist. Now, where people can find this creed today, um, Pope St. Paul VI included it in a document that he um, wrote called Mysterium Fidei, the mystery of faith, which is a beautiful document, by the way. Um, he wrote it in 1965, Mysterium Fidei, the mystery of faith. And in there, he includes in paragraph 52, um, the, the creed that Baron Garius had to sign to come back to the church. And just part of it says, and now, this is beautiful. Why is this beautiful? This is the heart of the Renaissance, I think. This is the heart of revival. This, these words, I imagine saying this before we get up to receive the Eucharist, because you have to think about what you're doing, what you're saying, what you're receiving. Because mm-hmm. I believe in my heart and openly profess that the bread and wine placed upon the altar are, by the mystery of the sacred prayer and the words of the Redeemer, substantially changed into the true and life giving flesh and blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that after the consecration, there is present the true body of Christ, you know, which was born of the Virgin, died as the right hand of the father. And, and there's also present the true blood of Christ, which flowed from his side. They're not present by only means of sign and of the efficacy of the sacrament, but also in their very reality, and truth of their nature and substance. Bam! That is Catholic <laughs> Theology 101 mm. on the Eucharist right there. Imagine that, you know, I mean, yes, we say, Lord, I'm not worthy. You should come under my roof. Only say the word I shall be healed. And then you come up to receive communion. But imagine if you had to say that. Because the, the in the Eastern churches, they do have a prayer very similar to that. Like in mm. the Maronite rite. Um, you know, I'm by ritual. Um, the the uh, the um uh sh- um, the bishop in Australia has given me faculties to function as a deacon in the Maronite right there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so um, you know, they, they say a beautiful prayer, and the Chaldeans as well. Um, mm-hmm. Before they come out to receive Eucharist, there's a beautiful statement of, of Eucharistic faith. And I think you know if if I were Pope, <laughs> one of the things that I would do during this time is is to change that you know Lord, I'm not worthy to come in, which is beautiful scriptural, but I replace with some kind of creedal statement, maybe a version of the creed um that the that uh that pope that Pope Paul wrote and um gosh I mean I would love to see that uh, something simple like that um mm-hmm. I think it'd be a, sm- a small change, but I think a very effective change and so now people have to think deeply and seriously about what they're saying before they come to receive Jesus. Mm-hmm. And the last big Eucharistic renaissance was in the 13th century. Um, Pope Urban IV, um, he instituted the Feast of, uh, feast of Corpus Christi, mm-hmm. you know? And, uh, and he was the one who started, uh, when, when they started using a monstrance on a regular basis there, and where the Lord is exposed and carried in procession. And he also ordered uh, a, a commissioning of uh, new Eucharistic hymns and so, what do we get out of that? We got O Solitaris, Tantum Ergo, Panis Angelicus. All three, by the way, were written by who? Is Saint this is a Catholic here. St. Thomas Aquinas. <laughs> See, everybody knows him for the Summa Theologica and for his, his really deep, intense philosophical writings about and, and theological writings about the church. But he also had a beautiful heart for mm-hmm. the faith as well. And that beautiful heart comes through. In, in, in those three beautiful Eucharistic hymns that we sing all the way to this very day. Mm-hmm. So I think a resurgence. Now, some some bishops are doing Year of the Eucharist, you know, uh, which is great, but I think it has to be more than that. I mean, I, we have to, somehow the, the, the reality of the Eucharist has to hit people where they live, hit them in the heart. Yeah. So I love the idea of the, of the Year of the Eucharist, the many dioceses, I think that's wonderful. Um, But I I think somehow we need to get we need to get deeper and reach people at a different different level, maybe preaching, um, you know, where um, homilies for a certain period of time, focus on Christ's presence in the Eucharist, you know, Mm -hmm. different things like that.
1: Yeah, I know you bring up a great point. I know even, um, you know, uh, World of Blaze, the Apostate that I, uh, you know, help uh, lead with the team, we. When we were discerning on what we would continue to do at least in this year of twenty twenty one. We were right at the top of that list, outside of what we're doing for the family and and uh, marriages and family was uh, a Eucharistic conference. Like You know, there's no time than the now uh, to better educate and to light a fire, like you said, to cut people to the heart with regards to uh, the greatest gift we have uh, in our Lord himself um, present in the the blessed sacrament of the Eucharist. So I, I would agree with you wholeheartedly, Deacon, that there's so much that we have to learn, obviously evident in the survey, and so much that we have to really encounter when it comes to our Lord. And I think the more that people can, we can even put people before the Lord in the blessed sacrament, that's life changing in and of itself. You know, you know, for those that are listening out there that may um, that are privileged and blessed to have the opportunity to, to get into an adoration chapel um, to just sit in that sacred silence and just place yourself before the Lord and just ask yourself, you know, uh, or have that dialogue with the Lord about opening your eyes and your heart to his true presence. And start to just, you know, introduce it. Maybe it's five, ten minutes, uh, you know, a week. And then you'll start to know, as Deacon and I both um, have have shared before, but in our own personal prayer life, I mean, Eucharistic Adoration is one of the key elements to uh, sustenance. Because this world is a crazy place. Um, Pre-COVID it was crazy. Now it's really crazy, you know, (laughs) in post-COVID. And so what are we going to do? And what separates us really from the rest of our brethren out there? It's the Eucharist. You know, it's that 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 key sacrament there—the the, the belief in the true presence. So, any parting words, Deacon, as we kind of round this out and really encourage uh, our, our brethren out there to, at uh, the very least, start to learn about uh, this thing called transubstantiation or the real presence, um, and, and then maybe, uh, you know, get active and, and work with your pastor or your uh, your parish leadership on. Doing some type of eucharistic formation, doing some type of eucharistic conference, or doing some type of eucharistic procession or catechesis in general.
0: Yeah, I think just very simply, um, I, I would go to the eucharistic adoration. Yeah. You know, maybe you don't have time to go for the whole hour, but just yeah. go before the Lord in that blessed sacrament, and and just you know, because usually they have Bibles and things in there. Read John six. You know, read read. I just read. The whole chapter of john six just chapter six and just okay see see the pattern see how jesus fed them bodily. now he needs to feed them spiritually see how they reacted to what he was saying and how jesus never uh doubted or never turned back or never went back on what he said you know um he in fact he challenged his apostles what do you say and what does peter say you have the words of eternal life Mm -hmm. so if jesus is god and this god has given us a church and the greatest gift this church has given us is the presence of jesus in the eucharist you know the, i mean th- that's something to, to, to deeply contemplate as we begin to come back to church and let's pray like that priest said at the beginning of his homily um that we don't go back to life as normal mm-hmm. you know that the new normal will be re- completely reversing those statistics that you were talking about, but it has to start with personal conversion. And I would challenge all the men out there, you know, um, you are the priest, you're the spiritual heads of your households is to really establish a Eucharistic center and Eucharistic heart within yourself. So you can become the priest, the one who offers the sacrifice, um, uh, the sacrifice of your life for your wife and for your kids. And the heart of that sacrifice is Jesus in the Eucharist. So you, you know, you have a, a resurgence of the Eucharistic love in your own heart and you can bring that home to your family uh, as the priest in your house.
1: Amen to that. And, you know, just to, to add briefly on to that Deacon, um, you're going to, you're not going to be able to change minds unless you change your heart first. Right. And I think it starts like the personal encounter where we start to help form um, um, our own personal relationship with our Lord and, you know, speaking from experience for both of us, you know, sitting before the Blessed Sacrament is a game changer. It's spiritual radiation to the exponential power. And there's nothing that deacon or I or anybody else can say that our Lord can't say himself in the Blessed Sacrament. So put yourself. And, and open yourself up and then let's be part of this Eucharistic Renaissance. So, Deacon, um, appreciate, as always, man, it, it time flies when you're having fun with another. Yeah, brother. that's for sure. <laughs> and uh, talking about such a such a key, key thing in our world today. And I do believe it is going to be uh, fundamental to us uh, not going back to normal, but really evangelizing and revitalizing um, the love of God, specifically in the the, sa- the Sacred Sacrament of Holy Communion. So without uh, further ado, could we get your final blessing on on myself and all the listeners before we end this episode?
0: Sure. May Almighty God bless you and, and keep you and protect you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
1: Amen. All right, Deacon, we will see you on the next one, brother.
0: All right, look forward to it. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Sons of Thunder with the Dynamic Deacon and the Man on Fire. Don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe. And find out more at DeaconHarold.com and JohnSablon.com.
1: God's peace.